Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty and stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. My guest this episode is Dr. Andrew Ayer, who's a board-certified emergency physician practicing at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Andrew completed his medical school at the University of Vermont College of Medicine and his emergency medicine residency at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency, where I was lucky enough to both work with and train under him. After residency, he completed a fellowship in medical simulation and earned a master's degree in health professions education from the Mass General Hospital Institute for Health Professions. In addition to his clinical work, Andrew is an assistant residency director for the Harvard-associated Emergency Medicine Residency and an instructor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. It's great to get to sit down with Andrew and talk, and we cover really interesting things in this conversation, both about building our own internal ability to perform under pressure, and also about designing training that works for people that are coming up behind us. There are a couple of moments where the audio recording is, shall we say, suboptimal, but it's totally worth it to push through. There are some serious gems here. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Andrew, I am uh, so happy to be here talking with you about this. Um, Really awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Phenomenal. Um, So I know that before you were an ER doctor, uh, you were a a paramedic, you were on the ambulances seeing patients. And I'm wondering if we can go back to that and sort of start there. Um, Could you talk for a second about sort of as you first started your life in the emergency medical services world, uh, how did you first start thinking about emergencies and, and what got you into that in the first place? Yeah, so I feel really lucky that I had um, the experiences I had before medical school. So I actually started as a volunteer in one of the local emergency departments that I work in as a physician now. Um, so that was the start of it. And then I got my start in pre-hospital work. So I was actually an EMT, but on an ambulance that had both paramedics and basics on it. And I got to see a huge variety of um types of emergencies. We covered a ski mountain, we covered a couple of nursing homes, we covered a college town, we covered some very rural places. And I got to work with, with some veteran paramedics um, and EMTs who had seen all sorts of stuff. And it was just a really amazing way for me to get introduced to healthcare, care, um, to patient care, and to see how people respond in different emergencies. Um, and just I, I couldn't have asked for better role models. And at the time, I was actually a psychology major in college, and that was my major when I finished. So I kind of went about my pre-hospital work kind of with a psychology lens, and I actually kept a log of every call that I went on. So even hmm. if it was just transporting a patient back and forth from their nursing home or taking someone back home after they'd been in the hospital for something else, um, I kept a log uh, so that I could kind of look back and reflect on 
on them. And one of the things that I did a lot of during my time was kind of thinking about my own reactions to some of the calls that I was on. And as a college student where a lot of my friends were out partying or kind of doing social things or getting involved in clubs, I was spending time working on the ambulance and seeing some um, pretty interesting and frankly often kind of sad and difficult to deal with things. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about what my responses were to those and kind of what my feelings were um, and trying to figure out kind of how all that worked with me being kind of an 18, 19 year old college student. Hmm. And did you talk to any of the other uh, basics or paramedics at that time about sort of how they handled some of that part of the job? Yeah. So obviously it depended on kind of of what the calls were. Um, some things are just frankly funny. Some things are really sad. And a lot of folks, when you're dealing with high stress situations, high stress professions, you develop kind of a dark humor as a way to cope. Um, and so there were certainly some of that, but there were also calls that it was pretty clear that people were shaken up and that they weren't ready to joke about things. Um, I remember one particularly challenging call that I was actually working with my brother um, and one of the senior paramedics that was a pediatric cardiac arrest. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about it and checking in on each other. And it was one of the lessons I think I learned just the importance of the community um, and debriefing a little bit after a difficult situation, kind of relying on each other's experiences because a lot of people who don't have to deal with um, challenging situations or kind of difficult patient interactions or crises on a regular basis, it's it's sometimes hard to explain it to people, even if it's your loved ones or your family, they just, they don't get it necessarily the same way that some of your colleagues or peers do. Um, so I did really develop um, a sense of importance for discussing those things and just having mentors, if you will, that I could talk about and kind of share the experiences with and just see how they dealt with it um, because it's not easy. Hmm. And, and you said your brother was on the rig with you. Yeah, so he had been an EMT as well and actually came back for um, just a weekend to work. Um, so he and his partner went to this call, um, and I ended up going to help them when it became pretty clear that it was not a good situation. So it added this whole other dynamic of what it was like to be on a call like this with my brother and kind of all the all the issues around family and just to share that experience with him both was really helpful, but also it added another sense of kind of vulnerability to it all. Hmm. You know, as you reflect through that period of time, when, when you're sort of first just being introduced to the idea of what it really means to be part of an emergency response, um, are there any of the more senior paramedics or, or EMTs that really stand out to you as a, a role model? Um, did anything, you know, sort of jump to mind in terms of what they did that was very successful in terms of in terms of thinking in a crisis? And this could could be your brother or not. Yeah. So I was so amazingly fortunate to work with people who had been firefighters and EMTs for about as long as I'd been alive at that point. Um, so frankly, the role modeling was a huge part of it. And for me, starting off, there's all this adrenaline that's pumping and you see things that you're not used to. And so to be able to kind of look up at someone um, who's either your partner or that had trained you and to see how they're responding and see when they're calm, it kind of leads you to be calm. Um, and it's something that I've tried to build into my own practice of modeling that sense of um, 
calmness and clarity. And I distinctly remember kind of on one call, we were um, picking up a patient who had been in a ski accident and ended up getting paralyzed. Um, and I ended up driving and I remember driving down these icy roads kind of in the mountains of the ski area and being really kind of jazzed up and trying to get to the hospital fast. And um, I remember him coming up front to me and just saying, slow, like, slow down, like things are under control. And it really stuck with me in the sense that like panicking does not help anyone. There, there are times to rush and there, there are times where things are particularly time sensitive but it really instilled in me this sense of like knowing when those times are and the fact that like you just that staying calm and staying controlled and knowing that you have a situation under control is far more important than rushing and kind of getting yourself worked up. So it helped me to realize the importance of checking emotions, um, but also being able as a young person to kind of look up to someone who is modeling that sense of calm and clarity um, and communication, frankly. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think it's very true that, that, you know, it's often said that panic is contagious and will spread among people. But actually, the the obverse of that is also true, that calm is contagious. And if you do it right, will spread among people. And so that idea of how can you absorb that calm from somebody who has it, who's trained in that, and, you know, in the emergency mind a lot, we talk about the word sang froid, right, cold blood, um, as sort of the model of that idea of staying staying cool and collected under pressure. Um, that situation, you know, do you speed up and, and sort of take risks around some icy turns to get to the hospital faster? Or do you stay cool and get there in one piece is a really good metaphor for that in general. Um, when you were going through your reflections about that case in particular, you know, what, what did you derive from that? Was it sort of a a phrase or something that you'd say to yourself, like, you know, you mentioned slow down, things are under control. Is, is that a thing that you would say to yourself? Or was it more of an idea like, hey, I need to, I need to stay calm until it's time to push? It's more the ideal. Um, and like I said, the importance of having someone that I could look up to, who was leading very much by example and showing the calmness. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you said, panic totally is contagious. So kind of in my world now as an emergency physician, oftentimes I'm leading a team of less experienced people, whether it's physician assistants or nurses or students or kind of new nurses, and they're going to look up to the person running the resuscitation looking to set the tone. And if you can set a tone of calmness and quiet and kind of honesty, frankly, um, I think that's really going to matter. So what I took from kind of my EMT experiences was the importance of having someone who was experienced and could show me that it was okay to be calm and that that's actually what the situation required. Um, I chatted with someone recently when we were having a tough situation. One of the things I took away from a lot of emergency calls was in like four years of doing it, I, I don't think I can count on one hand the time that I actually ran. Like there are lots of bad things, but like running or freaking out, just it never makes a situation better. Um, so it's something that I now try to model, especially when I'm working with junior people so that they can see that things are under control. And even if things aren't going well, like they're under control and I kind of, I have this mantra where I make, I very intentionally try to slow my words down. I slow my voice down um, and I try to get people on board kind of for a shared mental model, but I try to elude calmness, whether it's real or not. I try to 
show it so that other people can kind of get on board with the general sense of kind of we have to get things done, but that panicking is not what we're going to do and that it's not actually productive to the overall goal. Yeah, man, I, I love that, that idea of setting the tone and saying it's okay to be calm and I'm going to show you that I can be calm and still get stuff done. Um, and maybe that's a good time to flash forward in time a little bit. So now among many of the other roles that you have, you're one of the um, assistant program directors for the Harvard Associated Emergency Medicine Residency, which is a place that both you and I were fortunate enough to train at, um, to spend some time there together uh, with you teaching me all sorts of awesome stuff. Um, and in that role, you are uh, one of the folks who is responsible for training some of the next generation of ER doctors. Um, how does it? How has it changed to be on that side of the fence, where you are now the mentor and and you are trying to to teach people how not only to handle their own cases but to become like the next generation of mentors? Yeah, so it's it's a super interesting dynamic where. At one level, I'm still ultimately responsible for the patient, but I'm also trying to get this junior um, echelon of learners to the point that they can run resuscitations and be confident in and of themselves. And as people progress, they need different levels of supervision and different levels of support. So they're still very much the one hand of um, wanting to role model what I think a leader is. Um, and I've had great mentors. I think we've all seen great mentors, but we've also seen people who don't really do it well. And my hope is that I can model um, and kind of help these junior physicians learn what their style is going to be. But I also think it's really important that as they're growing and learning that they're supported so that they don't have bad experiences. Um, I think it's fair to say that in emergency medicine and a lot of high-risk professions, everyone's going to have tough days, tough cases. But my hope is that at least as I'm training them, I can help support them through all those moments to the best of my ability and have them feel like they have people to turn to and have people who they can ask questions to and guide them along the way. Um, but my hope is that I can pay back all of the kind of mentorship and guidance and leadership that I saw in some of my attending physicians and some of the paramedics that I worked with, and frankly, with my dad, who was a surgeon, and I watched him through some really hairy situations never get worked up, and he always seemed to have kind of a next step and a next thought. So the hope is that I can provide that for this younger generation of physician that's trying to figure out who they're going to be. Hmm. And, and let's press on that for a second. How do you teach them that? How do you share that idea? Um, and and maybe this is useful for anybody who's listening to this who is a, you know, a junior ER physician um, in their training or for anybody who isn't when you're just trying to understand how you build your own sense of calm. You know, that idea of describing your dad like he's somebody who had the next thought, had the next move ready, I think is something we all aspire to. How do you teach that on like a day-to-day -day basis? I tend to be fairly analytical with my residents and students, and I, for lack of a better term, name my emotions. Um, and I think it's actually a really important thing to tell the room, listen, I'm feeling frustrated by, by the fact that there are too many people talking, or I'm feeling a little bit um, discouraged by the fact that we haven't been able to get this test done yet. Um, and I, I think a lot of times we're reluctant to share feelings. I don't know if it's because people feel like it's a little touchy feelies, not stuff that belongs in the workplace, but I actually think it can be really helpful to expressly state 
what you're feeling, why you're feeling that way, and what you want to do about it. And I think there's a certain vulnerability that goes along with that. So I'm quite comfortable and I encourage my residents to say when they don't know something and to ask for help. Um, one of the other things that we do a lot of for teaching um, is use simulation. And it's something that I've spent a lot of time uh, learning how to use. It's one educational tool. It's not perfect, but it allows us to practice managing those high risk situations that we can't always practice in the hospital. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with simulation, we basically use high tech um, models or mannequins that can be $30,000, $60,000. They can blink, they can cry. We can program them to do all sorts of stuff. So we can work with learners and put them in really high risk situations and let them try stuff. We can let them fail and we can let them practice language, practice uh, different procedures, and we can practice working as a team, which I think is super important. Um, one of the things that I found is that if I know the team that I'm working with, I will always do better and the outcomes tend to be better because I can talk to people directly and they know me and I know what they can do. Um, so simulation is one of the ways that we've um, really tried to implement team dynamics. Um, and part of that is just the communication and part of that is acknowledging errors. And it's it's actually been a really valuable uh, skill set um, for me personally, um, but also for teaching. Okay, so I've got to say, I don't think I've ever had a mannequin cry on me. Is that like a real thing? Like the mannequin can actually just start crying like tears? It's a real thing. So they can sweat, they can cry, they can salivate. Um, there are all sorts of bells and whistles. We just have to decide what's actually value added for any given scenario. That That is amazing. I also recognize that's totally not the point, but still that's worth, that's worth calling out as a potential. Um, we've had a couple of folks on the podcast who are experts in simulation uh, and who work primarily through the Navy Trauma Training Center. Um, and they've said things that are very similar, which is that, you know, simulation, while not perfect, is a great way to let people get together and practice hard things uh, and see what happens. And, and I think you added one really important piece to that, which you said somewhat offhand, which is that we let them fail and then we let them recover. And that's like such an important piece of it. Right. Because as you're describing all these role models and the ability to perform under pressure, part of that is recognizing that nothing is perfect and that there are bad things that happen and that you have to be able to absorb that and and to keep going. Right. To, to stumble and recover, to drop the tool, pick it back up and, and get back to work for it. Um, I don't want to ask you to reveal all of your secrets about simulation because you have to you have to keep enough in there to surprise everybody. Um, but as you're building these trainings, and maybe these trainings focus specifically on this idea of failure and then recovery, what kind of things do you do you put in there? What stumbling blocks do you throw in people's way? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, ultimately, the way that I think about these trainings are: what do I want the students to learn? A lot of times people will build them just kind of throw in all sorts of like use the technology and like let's make it have a seizure and let's do all these cool things and let's just trip them up and if they do anything wrong let's let's just like totally make them fail my approach and i think a lot of the simulation world is really trying to think of very specifically what do you want the students to learn and then build a scenario around that with that in mind you can also decide what's called kind of signal to noise. So the signal is what you're actually trying to teach them or what you actually want them to get out of the scenario. And the noise are the distractors. 
So it may be that you want the students to be able to focus on one patient or pick up some abnormal finding with lots of other things going on. And the purpose of the case is to deal with distractions. Hmm. You put a lot of distractions in, but if you're trying to teach them about chest pain, maybe you don't need lots of distractions. Similarly, if you're trying to have them deal with communication and focus on closed loop communication or make sure that people are doing the right task for their skill set, you can have lots of competing tasks and have different priorities and you have to have them choose who does what when. Um, so I think the more important thing is, especially when you're using a tool that has so many uh, um, different options like simulation, is to really think about what you're trying to get out of it and then build it backwards. Um, which is this kind of theory of backward design simulation. Hmm. So the idea is that you would want to use multiple different approaches with different signal to noise ratios in order to explore different uh, different sort of techniques that they could use. Exactly. And to remember that depending on how advanced your learner group is, that the signal to noise ratio is going to be different. A junior learner who who's just trying to learn the very, very basics about chest pain, doesn't need a lot of distractors. But a senior level resident who's about to graduate can probably deal with a few more kind of uh, atypical findings or special things built into it to make the case a little bit more challenging. But at the end of the day, the way I think of simulation, it, it is providing an experience that then people can talk about. The learning rarely happens hmm. for kind of case-based simulation during the actual case. It's during the debriefing and discussion afterwards. So learning more as post-processing. No, so I think of it as kind of a scaffolding. So, so when I'm teaching people, I always kind of personally remember that the things that I've learned most from in my life are the mistakes or the particularly memorable moments. And so simulation is designed to give folks an experience or a moment that then they can build information upon using this whole debriefing model. Simulation is, is the coral reef of the ocean upon which the rest of emergency medicine is built, huh? I think that that's a fair, fair explanation. Yeah. <laughs> I won't quote you on that. That's fine. It'll that's just be on the podcast. That. Um, but one of the things that I was really thinking when people are confronted with these kind of high stress situations, one of the things that you have to get used to is uncertainty um, and feeling a little bit unsure of yourself. And simulation is one way to let people kind of come to grips with that feeling and know that it's okay to be a little bit unsure of what the next step is or what's actually happening. And it's super uncomfortable, but I think it's important for people who work in environments like that to get used to kind of things aren't perfect. And I don't know the answer, but that I have steps that I'm going to take to try to get to the right way. Yeah, that's that's very true. Most of the cases that we do, and certainly most of the really challenging cases, have that as a very central theme, which is that nothing is perfect. And whether that's just not having the right information available or having equipment break on you in the middle of what's happening, you know, you're going to face these situations where things just aren't going the way that you want them to go. So you have in your mind, and, and maybe shifting gears a second towards your own personal practice here, so you have developed this sense of being able to handle uncertainty and developed this sense of being able to function under pressure, understanding that nothing's perfect. When you find yourself in a really difficult case, how do you summon that idea? It 
kind of combines a few of the things that we've spoken about earlier. One is that I intentionally kind of slow my speech down. I oftentimes will quiet my voice down so people need to listen to me, but also see that I'm speaking slowly and hopefully calmly. And I frankly tell people what I'm thinking so that they can help me if I'm not thinking of something correctly, if I've missed something, but then they also know that I am thinking something or that I need help with something. There's often sentiment that the physician or the leader of whatever situation has to be the smartest person in the room and they have to be in charge. And I tend to think of it a little bit differently in that they don't necessarily need to know the answer. They don't always have to be the brightest or most book smart person in the room. It helps if they know some knowledge. But instead of being the absolute captain of the ship, my feeling is team leader is much more like an orchestra master. They don't have to be able to play every instrument perfectly, but they have to be able to get everyone to work together to create a symphony. So Mm -hmm. the way I kind of manage that is I will tell people if I'm not sure, or I'll tell people what I'm thinking, and I'll be pretty clear if I need help with something. Um, And I actually think that that vulnerability, if you will, helps people to get on board and feel like everyone's working towards the same goal and that people can chime in if they have thoughts or they can kind of provide some advice or they can offer to help if it's not exactly clear what the next step is. So I think that two-way communication with the team is actually really important and it helps to maintain a sense of calm and trust between each other. That reminds me a lot of something that uh, a person who's been a mentor both to you and me in our training, Chuck Posner, uh, says all the time, which is that your job as the ER doctor, as the leader of the team, is to get the knowledge of the entire room all the way to the tip of the spear into the patient. It sounds like that's something that you spend a lot of time thinking about actively. Uh, when you're building your own ability to do this, um, are you still doing that sort of post-processing you know, reflection log like you had way back when, when you started? Or, or has your technique evolved into something different when you're when you're working on your own self for this? Yeah, I don't spend as much time writing down the cases that I see, but luckily with our electronic medical records, I can go back and follow up what happened. And I frankly still ask a lot of feedback from the people around me. I'll ask the residents, and most importantly, I'll ask the nurses how they thought it went and what could have gone better. Um, A lot of times the nurses have been doing this for many, many years, and I'll chat with the senior nurses and kind of ask what they think could have gone better. And it's it's really valuable to hear their thoughts. It's valuable to talk about particularly challenging cases and say what could have gone better, what really went well. Um, so that debriefing has kind of replaced the um, isolated reflection. Mm-hmm. But I also still do a lot of just personal reflection. And I still talk about cases with folks. And I think like a lot of people out there, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So if things don't go well, I'll ask colleagues and rely on them to kind of give feedback. And part of that is it makes you feel better, but you also have to be open to constructive feedback and you learn a lot, frankly. Um, so that's kind of been my approach. Yeah, there's a, an important idea in there, which is that, you know, getting better doesn't stop once you reach a certain level. You're constantly training and constantly trying to work your craft. Um, 
and that also it's really up to you to get that done, right? Nobody's going to come in and teach you how to be better after a certain point. Um, the, the responsibility in terms of figuring out a system that works for you, uh, both on a day-to-day level and then sort of more overarching how to evolve yourself as a physician or whatever it is you're trying to be, that's really on your shoulders to figure that out. Once you get to be an attending in medicine or you finish whatever certification is in a different field that you're kind of, you're there and you just do your thing. Um, but there's actually so much more learning and mastery that can come after that. Um, there's a book by Atul Gawande, and one of the chapters he talks about is that as a surgeon, he asks kind of um, some of his mentors who were, I think, retired to, to come in and watch him operate, not necessarily because he didn't know how to do the operation, but just so that they could come and give him tips because he was always trying to get a little bit better. And it's frankly a waste not to take advantage of other people's experience in mastery. You know, as you've been building your own career and, and teaching the residents now, are there any other um, books or sort of repositories of knowledge like that that you that you found yourself personally enjoying or recommending? There are a lot. Um, I particularly like Atul Gawande's book. I just think he has a really interesting way of thinking about healthcare and medicine and reflection. Um, so those are kind of my top ones right now. And then Jerry Groupman's books called Blink, just about kind of how people make decisions, um, I think are particularly interesting. So now having spent time um, in a bunch of different places of the emergency care spectrum, both, you know, I guess originally in psychology, but then pre-hospital care and then emergency care, and then now on the sort of teaching simulation end of the spectrum, what have you found some of the differences are between the ways that each of those different groups of people understands how to perform under pressure? Um, and are there any sort of common threads that you've tried to pull together to to strengthen um, your own system? So it's a little bit of a tough question because I feel like I have grown up in the system as the system has changed. So it's hard for me to necessarily say whether it's that I have changed or the teaching has changed. I I feel like the way that pre-hospital tends to work is it's still a little bit more kind of tough love um, and you still learn by watching and doing. And I feel like medicine has grown a a little bit more to a place where people are being a little bit more introspective um, and kind of talk about these things a little more freely. I think there's a time and a place for both and I think there's value for both. But I feel like medicine has adopted some of the kind of softer non-technical skills a little bit faster than the pre-hospital kind of firefighting um, world has. But the ideas of crisis resource management or crew resource management, which is a lot of what we've been talking about, um, has kind of gotten into both sides of it. At the end of the day, I feel like communication is important and actually kind of the critical thing that fails in most emergencies. Uh, leadership is critical and frankly finding mentors and watching people who have gone through these battles before you and learning from them is I think the most valuable um, kind of apprenticeship model that you can find and you can either answer this question as like present day Andrew or sort of like past self Andrew but when you're going and trying to create that new uh, relationship with a mentor where you're you're watching how they perform under pressure do you um, are you explicit about that? Do you do you go and say, hey, you know, so and so, I'm I really want to watch how you handle this case. Can you talk me through what you're thinking, or 
do you tend to more sort of just observe passively and then process on your own? I think it's a combination. I don't necessarily say I'm trying to watch you as a mentor, but I think I've identified in my own head the people that I really value their opinion and I really value their work that I watch and I'll pick their brains not necessarily telling them that it's because I want to teach me to be like them, but just because I really value their input and advice. Um, so it's a little bit more informal in this sense, but I think there's a lot of value to be said for kind of explicitly forming those relationships. Um, and if you, if you do formalize in a way that someone is your identified mentor or kind of role model or whatever it may be, I think it sets up a way that they can give you a lot more pointed and very valuable feedback. So it's probably something that I could be much better at. Along the way today, we've talked mostly primarily about things in the sphere of emergency medicine. Um, one of the strengths of a lot of the folks on this podcast has been their ability to um, pull lessons from multiple different disciplines. When you're, again, trying to get better for your own self in emergency medicine, are there any other spheres of life that you tend to look at to pull lessons from? It tends to kind of all go back to my upbringing where my dad was a surgeon, which we've mentioned, and my mom was a social worker. She is a social worker and a therapist. So a lot of the ideas of clear communication and sharing your feelings and not just keeping them inside, but being, being very explicit to the people around you, um, those are the biggest things. Um as far as other professions, pretty much anyone who deals with high stress situations, um, anyone who has to be the leader of a team. So I've worked at um, a number of camps, uh, boarding schools. So a lot of the lessons I've learned have been from other educators um, and from people who just have to manage large teams. Um, and so, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily all come from medicine, but it's people who were responsible for teaching and bringing people together. Um, so I think those are the most influential places um, that I've learned from. Andrew, I want to be mindful of our time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up here in just a second. So I think what we talked about today was about how to build for yourself a program of training to continue to get better and better at your craft. Uh, we talked about how in the middle of a crisis, focusing on setting the tone for the room around you, uh, making explicit that it's okay to be calm, but also that it's okay to show that you're not perfect, uh, and using that communication as a space for people to jump on board and to help uh, the project move forward. Um, we talked about uh, the importance of designing training for other people and of varying the signal and noise ratio purposefully to try to accomplish an actual goal. Um, and we talked a lot about the idea about the difference between learning in the moment and sort of the importance of post-processing, both individual post-processing for ourselves and then a more sort of formal post-processing with um, our friends, teammates, and, and mentors. Is there anything else that jumps out at you that, that you want to get in there as a final word to folks that are listening? One of the big ones just to take away is the idea that people on your team are always going to be watching you and that as a leader, you have such an important opportunity to lead your group in either a negative way or hopefully a really positive way and that by modeling certain behaviors and actions you can not only get what i think are better outcomes in the moment but you can also teach the next generation teach your colleague what i think is a great way to get better outcomes in the future well andrew thank you so much for being on the podcast totally awesome to get to sit down and talk with you about this um and just Thank you for being you. Absolutely. Thank you so 
much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.